Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Mosaic Life podcast. Before we get started, I would like to please ask you if you enjoy this conversation today or if you've enjoyed any conversation with any of my prior guests, I would be so incredibly grateful if you would take just two moments of your time to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That goes so far in helping others just like yourself discover the content that we have created here for you today. I am so incredibly excited to introduce you to my guest today. Nir Ayal is truly one of the nicest human beings I've had the opportunity to talk with on this podcast, and he's exceptionally intelligent, which is abundantly clear through our conversation. Nir writes, he consults, and he teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. Nir previously taught as a lecturer in marketing at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford. Nir co-founded and sold two tech companies since 2003 and was dubbed by the MIT Technology Review as the prophet of habit-forming technology. He is the author of two best-selling books, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Indistractable has received critical acclaim, winning the Outstanding Works of Literature Award, as well as being named one of the best business and leadership books of the year by Amazon and one of the best personal development books of the year by Audible. The Globe and Mail called Indistractable the best business book of 2019. In addition to blogging at nearandfar.com, Nier's writing has been featured in the New York Times, the Harvard Business Review, Time Magazine, and Psychology Today. What I truly loved about this conversation is what I loved about the book and Nier himself. We don't need to demonize tech as much as we want to. What we need to do is learn and train ourselves how to use it responsibly. I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting at a stoplight or standing in line somewhere for a maximum of 30 seconds and just out of habit pulled out my phone and just stared at it not doing anything, but just stared at it because it became a coping mechanism for me to satiate my boredom. It's what Nier goes on to describe in his book, Indistractable, as well as what we talk about on the podcast as an internal trigger. The lessons in this podcast are vast and the show notes are extensive. So I highly recommend you check those out at the mosaiclifepodcast.com. And so without further ado, please welcome my guest, Nier Ayal. Nir, thank you very, very much. Um, you know, right off the bat, I just want to say I really enjoyed Indistractable. It was a phenomenal book. Um, I, I had heard about it sometime last year. I think I actually listened to you on Kevin Rose's podcast. I think it was, and I've been intending to read it, and I've had many guests recommend it. So I just wanted to thank you for writing it because it's an extremely important work. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank you for the kind words. It uh, means a lot to me. <laughs> well, good, good. And I like how you kind of frame it as, uh, especially in the beginning, when it comes with when it comes to your daughter, it's it's a superpower uh, being indistractable, and um, it's something that we should strive to pursue, uh, especially in our lives where we are full of constant dings and pings and reminders and everything pulling our attention away from us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and for uh, really diving into the book. It means so much to me after I spent five years on it. Uh, you know, I, I wrote the book really for myself more than anyone because 
I've never been someone who has a lot of self-control or willpower. That's like never been my strength. <laughs> and uh, I, I decided that, you know, if I wanted uh, to, to figure something out for myself, you know, I have a, a good friend, Gresham Rubin, who's also an author who uh, you may have read some of her books, but uh, she always says that research is me search. And that was definitely the case for me that I found that I was incredibly distractible frankly, right? And I had been for years that uh, I would say I was going to exercise and I wouldn't. I would say I was going to eat right eh, tomorrow. <laughs> I would say I was going to stay focused at work and not procrastinate. And yet another day would go by and that big yeah. project still was left undone. Uh, and so the, really the, the turning point for me where I had to reconsider my relationship with distraction came when, when I was with my daughter one afternoon and we had this beautiful day planned. Uh, we just had some quality daddy-daughter time together. And we had this book of activities that uh, that fathers and daughters could could play, uh, could, could play these activities together that were described in this book. So it was, you know, do a Sudoku puzzle, make a paper airplane. And one of the activities in the book was to ask each other this question, that if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I remember the question verbatim. But I can't tell you what my daughter said, right. because in that moment, for whatever reason, I decided it was a good time to check my phone. And I started sending her a very clear message that whatever was on my phone was more important than she was. Right. And by the time I looked at my phone, she left the room and decided to play with some toy outside. And that's when I realized I had to reassess my relationship with distraction, that uh, if I couldn't even stay focused on my own daughter, uh, that something had to change. And so that's when I decided I really had to get to the bottom of why uh, I kept getting distracted and in all sorts of areas of my life. Yeah. Uh, and so that really started this this journey to figure out the deeper uh, the deeper psychology of distraction because, you know, I, I, I tried the, uh, the the digital detoxes, which is kind of the the, the tips that everybody gives right. you these days. Oh, it's technology's fault. But uh, when I tried that, right, I got rid of my technology and I, I got myself a flip phone for, I think it was like $12 off of Alibaba. And uh, I got myself a word processor on eBay yeah. from like the 1990s and it didn't have any internet connection. Uh, so I thought, okay, no apps, no internet. Now I'll stay focused. Now I won't get distracted. And I'd sit down on my desk and say, okay, now I'm going to get to work. And somehow I still got distracted. I would say, oh, there's that book on the bookcase that I've been meaning to, to, to read through again, or let me clear off my desk real quick, or uh, you know, the trash needs taking out, and I would still find distraction. Right. And so I wanted to go deeper than just these very superficial answers like, oh, you know, it's all the technology's fault. I just didn't buy it, and I wanted to dig deeper. Yeah, and that's interesting. And I have to imagine, you know, given that the book took five years from research or from conception to completion, how much... How much did, did things change both in techno obviously technology changes very quickly, it changes overnight. So did anything shift in the world in which we were living in during that five year period where you had one distraction on day one, but you know, five years later mm -hmm. there's a new distraction? Yeah, I I, I think um you know, I think the dialogue around technology has definitely shifted. Um I think that we uh, we're in kind of a euphoric period for a long time around uh, tech, uh, specifically social media. Right. And now uh, the conversation is completely different. Uh, so now I think it's much more people are starting to recognize that, you know, there's there's a lot of good that we can uh, extract from social media. But there's also 
some bad things. There's some bad aspects. And this shouldn't be a surprise. Um, Sophocles, the Greek philosopher, said 2,500 years ago that nothing vast enters the life of mortals without a curse. Uh, more recently, Paul Virilio said that you, when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. Yeah. And that's always the case. With every new technology that has this kind of magnitude, you're going to have some bad aspects of that technology as well. So what did we do? Did we stop sailing ships? No. Well, why is it that we never hear of shipwrecks anymore? When was the last time you heard about a shipwreck? It almost never happened. Right, right. We didn't stop sailing ships. We made ships better. We made them safer. How? With more technology. Yeah. <laughs> right? So what we do is, as human beings, we adapt and we adopt. We adapt our behaviors. And that's what I'm helping with when it comes to this book, Indistractable. I'm, I'm hoping to accelerate that process so that people can learn how to adapt our behaviors to this technology so that we can extract the good aspects and leave the bad aspects behind. And then we also adopt, meaning we adopt new technologies to fix the last generation of crappy technologies. So, uh, the, so, so that's really what we have to do here is, is not you know, throw our hands up and say, oh, it's all technology's fault. Let's wait for the big tech companies or the big government to fix things. Right. Because why the heck would we wait? Right? <laughs> like, we can do something about this right now uh, by, by learning how to become indistractable. Right. And, and, you know, why not only why would we wait, but why would they want to change? I mean, unless there's full societal pressure behind a company like Twitter or Facebook, it's not profitable for them to say, hey, spend less time on our app and, you know, make us less money. It would not make sense in the long run for, for them to do that unless they have that added pressure. And you, you, I, as you've mentioned over the last couple of years, you have that alert on Instagram saying, hey, you've spent 45 minutes on the app today. Do you want to take a break? Mm-hmm. Which it's it's important. And I'm glad that they're doing that, but I just don't feel like there's a whole lot of reason for the, to do that unless there's pressure behind it. Well, and I would also argue that we wouldn't want them to. Right. That to, to wag your fists at these companies and say, uh, Facebook, your products are too engaging. <laughs> uh, Netflix, your shows are too fun to right. watch. I like them too much. Uh, please make them more boring. Uh, Apple, your iPhones are too user-friendly. Please make them harder to use. That's stupid. I, for <laughs> sure. Product becoming engaging is not a problem. It's progress. It's what we want them to be. We want these products to be user-friendly, fun to use, even habit-forming. Yeah. Uh, so it's not that necessarily these technologies are evil somehow. And look, you know, even if the government does step in and do something, and, and look, I am for regulation of certain aspects, right. uh, you know, monopoly status, um, political incursion. Absolutely. And you have to give these companies some credit too. They're doing quite a bit. Uh, they're, I know they're, you know, they're, they're, they're hauling ass here trying to do as much as they possibly can to fix a lot of these problems. I don't think they benefit from, from a lot of problems that have happened on these platforms. If anything, there's incredibility. Um, but to, to hope that somehow they're one day going to say, you know what, let's make our products more crappy so people don't use them as much. That's never going to happen. Oh yeah, for sure. And if just thinking about that, you're, so let's say you're binging on a show on Netflix. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten pissed off at Netflix because it stops playing, says, hey, Trey, are you still watching? Yes, I'm still watching. Why would I want to stop watching if it's if it's actively on the television? So I, I, I get it. Point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. On the other hand, we get pissed off that we watch too much, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, it, it, it's never our fault. It's either the, the, the technology's fault for either uh, enabling us or disabling us. Um, 
you know, yeah, and, and that's a really good point when you say, you know, our fault. And I think, it, you know, we don't want it to be our fault. And I think we, you know, more and more, I think we see people, uh, you know, especially recently when it comes to criticism around technology, it's never their fault, right? It's always somebody else's fault, right? Whatever it is that I'm not doing with my life, it's always first, let me blame, yeah. <laughs> right? Yes. Then maybe, you know, maybe I'll think of something I can do. And of course, that's exactly backwards. Like you never hear in people's discussions about, well, actually, you know, there's a lot you can do, you know, how about uh, turning off notifications? Have you started with that, right? right. <laughs> like two thirds of people with a smartphone <laughs> never change their notification settings. Two thirds of people with a smartphone never change their notification settings. What? Right. <laughs> can we honestly say, that these tech companies are addicting us, that they're hijacking our brains, and we haven't even taken five minutes to change the notification settings. And guess what? Once you do that, Zuckerberg can't reach into your phone and change those settings. Nothing you can do. Right. And so I think instead of waiting, we can do something about this ourselves right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, one thing you said, which has really become the one liner from this book that I, I've heard multiple people reference. Time management is pain management. And if you really think about that, it becomes so true when we start talking about internal and external, external triggers. I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting somewhere and I've, I've had a thought about my business and, oh, crap, I've got anxiety. I need to do something to distract myself. So I, I pop open my phone and just kind of check out what's going on in the world so I don't have to sulk with what's going on in my own mind. It's, it's, it's tedious and it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, well, you are a member of a very illustrious club <laughs> that, that uh, uh, I absolutely uh, did this all the time. And I still have to sometimes catch myself and, and, and be on guard for what we call these internal triggers that we tend to blame the external triggers, right? Yeah. It's about the thing outside of us. But my research revealed over the past five years that most distraction begins from within. Right. It's not about the external triggers. It's about the internal triggers. Loneliness, boredom, fatigue, uncertainty, stress, anxiety. This is what we seek to escape from, which is why that, you know, as, as you said, this is a key point of the book. And I think what differentiates my work from basically everything else I'd seen out there, which is all about, you know, tips and tricks and life hacks, right. that none of these techniques work if you don't first understand what are you trying to escape from that distraction and procrastination they are not character flaws they are not some kind of moral failing for the vast majority of people there's nothing wrong with them you don't have some kind of you know diagnosis you don't need a pill to fix this problem what you need is to understand what is the emotional discomfort you are trying to escape that procrastination and distraction fundamentally are impulse control issues. Yeah. They, are, they stem from our inability to deal with these uncomfortable sensations in a healthy manner. And the good news is that we can learn what to do. Uh, we can all you know, very quickly adopt these tactics. You, know, you can learn this in, in hours <laughs> to, to learn everything I have to say over these five years of research uh, uh, to, to start adopting these practices. But you know, no matter what the distraction is, that's, that's why the book isn't just about technology distractions. That's what people kind of, that's the distraction du jour. But I wanted the book to be about all distraction because, you know, if it's not, uh, if it's not one thing, it's going to be the other. So whether it's uh, too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, yeah. it doesn't matter. Fundamentally, the origin is always this desire to escape discomfort. Yeah. I think nowadays people are, well, I, I shouldn't even say nowadays. I'm sure it's gone. It goes way, way back. But people 
don't like sitting with their own thoughts, which I think is what scares most people away from meditation is that they're afraid to accept the thoughts that are going through their mind. And, and so they, they reach for their phone nowadays, but you know, what, what, what was it like, you know, 15, 20, 50, a hundred years ago. And I know you talk about technology and how it changes throughout the last century when the radio became commonplace or, you know, the newspaper even or, or television, just things, Technology may change, but we don't evolve yeah. that quickly to change with it. Sure. Coffee shops. I was just yeah. reading just today about how the uh, 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 during the Enlightenment period yeah. that coffee shops were considered this place where, you know, men would spend time wasting their <laughs> days away, having nothing but conversation with each other. What a terrible waste of time that right. was. Even the bicycle. You know, the bicycle was this horrible technology that was going to make women into uh, lascivious, crazy <laughs> beasts. And really, this is what people said about pretty much every technology. Yeah. <laughs> that it's, it's, always, it's always somehow melting our brain. And the reason is that we're always looking for an excuse. We would much rather blame something, anything, but to look inside. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So let's uh, let's let's turn let's turn a little bit here and talk about the workplace because there's there's a, a good chunk of the book that that uh, does that and uh, you know one key term that you mentioned it, it uh, struck a chord with me because I recently had a guest on my podcast called um or her name was Ashley Mead and uh, she she worked in big tech for a while she worked for Pinterest she worked for Amazon and then she went back to school to become a psychotherapist and now she has started a consulting business to help teams develop psychological safety, which you had that exact phrase in your book. So let's talk about psychological safety. Let's talk about how the workplace is full of distractions and how we can breed a better environment. Uh, yeah. So this is one of, uh, one of the sections of the book that was, uh, for me, the most fun and the most enlightening to research, uh, because I, I didn't really know a lot about this topic. I, I had, I had a hunch, but I didn't know how to how to fix this problem that, you know, I, I wanted distraction to be something that that was fully in our control. And uh, while I'm pretty sure that technology is not the source of the problem, uh, it's pretty clear that our environment does shape our behavior. Yeah. And what's in our environment really, really matters. And in particular, when it comes to a work environment, uh, absolutely, the workplace does shape our behavior and can be incredibly distracting. And so what I discovered in my research was that that uh, distraction in the workplace is a symptom of cultural dysfunction. That uh, when a workplace has a when people complain about being overly distracted at work, there's always something deeper going on. Just like with the individual, there's something deeper going on. There's these internal triggers that we have to face in the workplace. Even if you yourself are indistractable, you follow right. the four tactics I talk about in the book, you implement in your life. But what if your colleagues are constantly distracting you? Your boss won't stop calling you and interrupting you while you're trying to do focused work. What do you do then? Right. And so uh, what I discovered was that 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 there's a, a confluence of two factors that literally cause depression and anxiety disorder. And this is pretty rare in the social sciences because you know most of the time when you when you look at a study, it's it's about correlation, not causation. But in this case, this study actually revealed. A, a causal relationship between these two factors in the workplace and incidences of depression, anxiety disorder, 
And when I first, you know, just read the abstract, I was like, okay, what, what would that be? Let me guess. Before I look into the study, what would be these factors? So I was thinking it would be some kind of depressing job, right? Like, right. let's say uh, you have to work as a mortician or I don't know, like somebody who has a sad job. Maybe you have to, you know, put puppies to sleep at the vet. I don't know. Yeah. But it turns out that what you do for a living actually has nothing to do with it. That really what what it's all it's not about the job you do it's the work environment you do it in yeah. that there is a certain type of work environment that literally drives us crazy and that type of work environment is where you have a confluence of high expectations coupled with low control okay mm-hmm. high expectations plus low control and that 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 uh, if if they're if they're not uh, you know, if you have high expectations with high control, that's actually fine. People right. can thrive in those circumstances. So this isn't about like expecting less of people, not, not at all. But when you have high expectations with low control, this is where you get these symptoms of anxiety, depression, disorder. And that only causes more of these internal triggers, more of that discomfort. What do people do when they feel depressed, when they feel anxious? They look for some semblance of agency. Yeah. And so what would they do? They send more stupid emails that didn't need to be sent. They call more pointless meetings that didn't need yeah. to be called. So we, we, they not only do they distract themselves, they distract everybody else around them. Yeah. And so that's where, uh, that, that's where, you know, I, I say that the, uh, the, the, the real cause of distraction in the workplace, it's nothing symptom of a cultural dysfunction. Yeah. And one of the ways that you fit this, this terrible workplace culture that pervades so many companies Uh, is by establishing psychological safety. So back to your question around psychological safety, psychological safety is one of these three aspects of building an indistractable company, that uh, psychological safety is all about the ability to raise your hand and and air a concern without the fear of getting fired, that you can speak openly about something to improve the company uh, and you won't be considered not a team player or lazy or uh, obstructing the cause of, of the company. And the reason this is so important is because if you can't talk about the problem of distraction at work, you've got all kinds of other problems. I promise you, you've got all kinds of other skeletons in the closet uh, concerning things that you can't talk about. And so the companies that provide people with the psychological safety that they need to talk about distraction find that they can talk about all kinds of other stuff, right? All kinds of other dysfunctions at the company, all kinds of other things that can be fixed. So uh, giving people psychological safety is the first tenet. The second tenet is to give people a forum to talk about these problems. And so I profile a few different companies, like for example, the Boston Consulting Group, where they started with this case team of just eight people and they had them meet once a week and talk about how to give everyone what they call PTO, predictable time off. So that once a week, everybody on the team could have time when they didn't need to be on call. Uh, And that was actually a big deal. Like that had never happened before. And now it's actually something that has disseminated throughout the organization. Started with eight people and one team, and now the entire company does it. So that's number two is is giving people a a forum to talk about their problems. And then number three, it's about uh, leadership displaying what it means to be indistractable. So another company that I profile in the book is Slack, which is kind of ironic because Slack was the number two most distracting technology in the surveys I did for the book. Uh, number one, you probably won't be surprised, was email. Email was 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 called the most distracting technology. Number two was Slack or some other group chat app, but Slack is the biggest one in the world. And so I actually went to visit Slack headquarters 
And I expect it to find an incredibly distracted company. Right. Because if everybody seems to think that Slack is this tool that's very distracting, well, then nobody uses Slack more than the people who built it. So they should be the most distracted people on earth. But that's not at all what I found. It was a fascinating story. That in fact, uh, they have this, this, this company culture that is very indistractable. And part of the reason why is because they they uh, they live this ethos that people do their best work when they are not constantly distracted, when they are allowed time to think and to focus. Yeah. And so when you walk into Slack headquarters, if you go to the company cafeteria, you will see in bright pink neon letters, it says on the wall, you can't miss it, it says, work hard and go home. And they did like past 6 p.m., if you post a message to Slack, you are chastised. That is against company culture. We don't do that at Slack. Yeah. That is what they'll tell each other because everyone from Stuart Butterfield, the CEO on down, you know, lives this ethos of letting people do their best work uh, requires them to not be constantly distracted. And so that's the third tenet, that management needs to exemplify what it means to be indistracted. Yeah, and I love that. And what I loved about that Slack, um, I guess, anecdote was the fact that they actually have channels built into their internal teams on Slack where you can talk about grievances within the company. And that's that's just not something that you generally see, at least not in my experience. When, like you said, when you speak out, you you can put your actual career at risk. And so having that, that psychological safety, being able to actually talk openly about how you feel about your day-to-day life within a company is it's extremely valuable and important. Totally. So, yeah. it's, so it's, I mean, that, and that's that second tenet of, of giving people a forum to talk about these problems. So, so yeah, at BCG, they have, phys, you know, they have meetings in the real world at Slack. They have these conversations over Slack, Right. <laughs> but the, so the point is, is not, you know, do everything your employees want. That's not what I'm saying. Sometimes management needs to make difficult decisions, which some employees can disagree with. The idea here is to give people a forum to talk about their their issues and to know that they're being heard. That's the important bit. Because of course, when you feel heard, you have not only more psychological safety, you also have more agency, right? So now you're increasing uh, that, that low control aspect. Now you're giving people more agency, more control. They feel like they have an influence in the company. Absolutely. And so let's talk a little bit more about leadership, uh, because I, I think that's a, that's a really good point that uh, needs to be harped on more often. You know, one of the things that I've noticed mm-hmm. is that just because you're in a leadership leadership position does not mean you're a good leader, a good or effective leader. And so when it comes to distilling these these messages and these ideologies throughout a company, you know, how much of it needs to come from the top down? I have to imagine a, a fair amount of it does, but it also has to be, you know, something that the employees live and breathe too. So how does that generally shake out when it comes to creating these systems? Yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, there are a lot of things that we can do as, you know, if you're if you're in a position of power, so if you, if you are a manager, uh, then you have a lot more influence, right? right. Because leadership flows downhill. And so people will always look to what the leader is doing. Uh, if you are constantly checking your phone, well, you're setting an expectation that that you expect people to be equally as responsive. So you're going to set that tone, um, whether you like it or not. But even if you're not in management, uh, you can also influence your company just by being indistractable yourself. Uh, you can do things like manage your manager. Uh, there's a there's a part in the book where I talk about top boxing as a very effective alternative to keeping a to do list. You know, many people don't know that running your life with a to do list 
is probably the worst thing you can do for your personal productivity. And yeah. so, uh, it, you know, I propose this technique that it's I didn't make it up. It's been around for for decades. This uh, practice of making a time box calendar where you decide in advance what you will be working on, and then sharing that calendar with your supervisor, with your manager. And this is called schedule syncing. So you sit down once a week, you show them your time box calendar, you know, what you will be doing during your working hours. And when you do that, you have the ability to ask your manager to help you reprioritize. One of the worst pieces of personal productivity advice, one of the things I just hate out there that everybody's heard, it's such a such an old trope, is if you want to be more focused, if you want to get more done, learn how to say no. <laughs> What kind of stupid <laughs> advice is that? You're going to look at your boss in the eye, the person who pays your check every month, and you're right. going to tell that person, no, I don't want to do that? That's ridiculous. You're going right. to get fired. What kind of stupid advice is that? <laughs> so instead of you being the one who says no, have your boss be the person who says no about what kind of tasks you should and shouldn't do. So when right. you show your boss that calendar and say, okay, here's how I plan to spend my time this week, you can have a discussion around, okay, here's what I plan to do. Here's how I, I plan to spend my time. Now you see this list of other things that I won't get to. Here's, here's all this stuff that I didn't know where to fit into the calendar. Right. Can you help me reprioritize? Is there anything on this list that you think is more important than what I put in my calendar? Help me reprioritize. Is this meeting more important than this task? Help me figure that out. And the, your boss will worship the ground you walk on. If you do this with your boss, they will love you because every boss – you know, whether they tell you or not, they're wondering what you're doing all day. Absolutely. <laughs> right? Yeah. And if you've been in a management position, you know this is true. You kind of wonder, hey, what are my people doing? <laughs> right? Yeah. And so by having that transparency, by having that conversation, one, you're giving your manager so much more transparency. And by giving that transparency, you're also able to better manage your day because now you're giving your manager a more realistic portrayal of how long stuff takes you yeah. right here. I'm going to spend two hours on this task and then I'm going to spend five hours on that and I'm going to have this meeting. And so that transparency helps everyone. Uh, it is a wonderful way to manage your manager. Yeah. And you're putting yourself on the same team as your manager as well and vice versa, as opposed to going head to head with your, your day-to-day -day schedule, which I think a lot of times people, people do because Again, their managers don't know how hard or what that they're working on. So having that cohesiveness, that, that's got to be a, a great feeling for all involved on that team. Absolutely. Right. Exactly. You're, you are exactly, you're synchronizing the, the, this, this challenge of how should I spend my time? Right. <laughs> right? Uh, we know that people have what's called a planning fallacy that uh, if you just use that to-do list methodology that, that I hate, I'm on a mission to destroy running your day on a to-do list. Not that I'm against writing down what you need to do. Right. I'm against the practice of waking up in the morning and saying, what do I do? Let me look at my calendar. I'm sorry, look at my to-do list rather than looking at my calendar. If you wake right. up in the morning and the first thing you do when you get to work is look at your to-do list, you've already lost, right? Because you're going to do the easy stuff. Sure. You're going to do the fun stuff. You're not going to do the important stuff, right? What you need to do is look at your calendar. Your calendar is your best to-do list. So when you synchronize your schedule with your boss, um, you're, 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 you learn together how long certain things take. And so now you're reassessing, hey, you know, I didn't realize, you know, your boss will say, I didn't realize that that project took so much time. You know what? Given how much time this has historically taken, maybe this is something we need to hire somebody else to help with or dump it all together because this other priority is much more important. But you can't know that unless you do this schedule sync. And by the way, it takes about 15 minutes a week. 
Yeah. So Monday morning, you sit down with your colleague, 15 minutes, you're on the same page, move on. Yeah. That's, that's great advice. I, I love that. And I, I feel like it hopefully will get everybody on your team on the same page. <clears throat> so Indistractable came out in 2019. And, I, and I'm curious, we, we talked a little bit before getting started here of, you know, where you're settling down right now, what life has like been like for you in over the past year. You know, when you wrote this book, did you imagine the world would be spending so much time in their own homes uh, in 2020? No. In fact, I was telling my wife the other day, I told her that I am so glad I wrote this book because yeah. the world has suddenly become such a more distracting place, yes. right? I thought the world was distracting before COVID and now <laughs> it's only more distracting, right? Not only is the world, you know, gone crazy in terms of what's happening in the news, right. uh, but now that we are working from home, we have all these new distractions that we didn't have before. Oh, and let's add on top of that. If you have kids, now you have to homeschool them oh, too. You know, there's all these new distractions in the form of our kids uh, as well. And so people, I think, are are really struggling with this problem. This is almost a universal problem now. It's one distraction or another. Uh, and so that's, that's you know, part of what's really changed. One, there are new external triggers, right. a la, you know, your your spouse, your roommate, your kids. Now these are new distractions that have nothing to do with technology. So it's just the fact that we're trying to work in close quarters. That's one. Uh, two, our schedule now is all messed up because we don't have the constraints we used to have of, you know, wake up in the morning, get the kids fed, uh, drive to work, have meetings. We don't have that anymore for many of us who are not going into the office anymore and working right. from home. You know, we, we have this big open day, which in fact, you know, sounded good, but now we're learning can actually really be maddening that we need constraints to Absolutely. do our best work. Well, the good news is you can impose those constraints on yourself. You don't need a boss to tell you that. You can you can decide your own calendar and then synchronize, as we said earlier, with your boss as opposed to having the constraints we used to have of, you know, go, you know, get your butt in this chair in the office. Now you don't have to do that. So you should actually have more time to do what you really want to do. Right. Uh, and then I think the third thing that's really changed is that there are more internal triggers today that uh, I think the world is just a scarier place, a more uncertain place, a more uh, a more stressful place than it was before Corona, uh, for good reasons. Yeah. And so for many people, if you're not equipped to deal with all these new uncomfortable sensations, uh, you have more things to run away from, yeah. right? When you feel uncertain, watch more news. Uh, when you're lonely and disconnected, go on social media. When, you know, when you're, uh, uh, bored, oh my goodness, you know, endless options of things you could do while you're bored. And so if you don't know how to deal with that discomfort in a healthy way, uh, now that you're feeling more of those internal triggers, you're more likely to get distracted. So, yeah, I think the 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 need for uh, folks to understand this methodology is off the scale now. Yeah, and so in in terms of dealing with these triggers, I mean, we can shut off our phones, we can we can turn off the TV, but we're we're still we're still there with our internal triggers, with our thoughts, and so how. I mean, is this something that we cope with? Is it something that we learn to deal with? Is it something that we learn to change? What What's the best course of action in today's day and age to to make sure that we're not being driven insane? Yeah, yeah. So there's there are many techniques we use to master these internal triggers. Um, there's there's over a dozen different things we can do. Basically, I I, I uh, apportion them into three big strategies. First is to reimagine the trigger 
The second is to reimagine the task. And the third is to reimagine our temperament. Uh, I'll just give you just a couple of techniques that, that I, I find are very, very useful, particularly with the reimagining the trigger category, which is where we, we learn to, uh, to, to master these internal triggers by seeing them differently. So the first step that the psychologists tell us is that if we can learn to identify the preceding emotion, so whatever it is that we feel right before we do the distracting action, uh, that's the first step. So if we can learn to identify, to write it down is an incredibly helpful step. Right. And then what we want to do is to explore it with curiosity rather than contempt. So as opposed to beating yourself up and telling yourself why you messed up or shaming yourself, all those things actually make you feel worse. And when you feel worse, you're more likely to get distracted. So we want to explore those sensations with curiosity rather than contempt. And then the third thing we can do is that we can learn to surf the urge. And this comes out of acceptance and commitment therapy. This is a technique that acknowledges that these internal triggers, these uncomfortable sensations, they're never permanent. They feel permanent, right? When we feel these uncomfortable emotional states, loneliness, boredom, anxiety, fatigue, they feel like they're gonna be there forever, but they never are. So if we can learn that they are temporary and then surf them like a surfer on a surfboard, yeah. this is how we can overcome. How do we do that? One technique that I like to use almost daily is called the 10-minute rule. And the 10-minute rule acknowledges that abstinence is not always the best strategy. That many times abstinence, telling yourself, no, don't do it, can backfire, especially with things that you can't escape from. When yeah. the external triggers are all around us, right? When, when uh, uh, there's technology at a, a, you know, always in our pockets, when we can always find a distraction here or there, a temptation lurks around every corner, Strict abstinence is not helpful because it's almost like if you think about um, like pulling on a rubber band. Right. So when you pull on a rubber band, you pull, 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 pull. Eventually, you can't pull anymore. And when you let go, the rubber band doesn't just stop where you where you started to pull it. No, it ricochets across the room. And that's how abstinence oftentimes feels. That when we tell ourselves, "Don't do it, don't 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 do it," okay, fine, I'll do it. That release of the tension yeah. feels good. It it's does. almost like if you really have to pee and you've been holding it for a long time and then you finally relieve yourself, ah, that, that relief feels good. And so your brain begins to associate when you tell yourself, don't smoke that cigarette, don't eat that chocolate cake. The relief of not having to tell yourself not to do something actually is recorded in the brain as a positive association. Right. Yeah. So we're we're learning this about smoking, which you know, of course, is highly addictive, potentially addictive. That it's not about the nicotine per se. Uh, that most smokers report they don't even like when they actually are mindful of smoking, they don't actually like it. Now, nicotine definitely has a sensation, right? It makes your body feel a certain way, but it's it's neutral. It doesn't necessarily feel good to everyone. It's that they have the association that this is what it feels like to not have to tell myself not to do what I wanted to do. So you don't want to get yourself in that rumination, rumination loop of, of obsessing about this thing you're not allowed to do. So what you want to tell yourself is don't tell yourself no, tell yourself not yet. Okay? Not yet, meaning I can give in to that temptation, but yeah. not right now. I can give into it in 10 minutes, hence like the 10-minute rule. So many times, you know, while I write, uh, writing for me, I've, I've written two bestsellers and hundreds of blog posts now. 
And writing never comes easy. It's always hard. Yeah. And it's full of these internal triggers, right? It's kind of boring sometimes. I'm full of doubt. I'm full of fear. Is anybody going to like this? Am I wasting my time? What is this all about? All I want to do is like go check some email or Absolutely. you know scroll social media or see what's happening in the news just to escape that discomfort. But instead of doing that, what I'll do is I'll take out my phone and I'll say, set a timer for 10 minutes. I'll put my phone down. And my job now is to either get back to the task at hand, okay? So either get back to writing or to surf the urge by focusing on that sensation with curiosity rather than contempt for just 10 minutes, right? Just asking myself, okay, what's going on here? What's, what am I feeling? What, just processing that sensation. And if I can just wait out those 10 minutes, right? By, with curiosity, genuine curiosity, not white knuckling it, but just exploring where that's coming from. And I teach you how to have this dialogue with yourself during that time. Nine times out of 10, by the time the alarm clock goes off and the 10 minutes are up, uh, I've forgotten what I'm waiting for. I'm already back at work. I'm already writing. Uh, and I don't feel that sensation. I don't feel that urge anymore. And so this is very effective if you're trying to resist that piece of chocolate cake that you're trying not to you know, indulge in too much sugar or resist that cigarette or resist social media, whatever the case might be, whatever distraction you're trying to fight. This technique of the 10 minute rule can be a very effective technique. Yeah. And that's, that's extremely important. And that's something that we can internalize. And, and we, like you said, you have that conversation, that dialogue with yourself and it helps you realize, okay, what are my motivations here? Why am I doing this? And so that leads me actually very nicely into hedonic uh, adaptation, because when we finally, when that 10 minutes is finally up and we say, okay, let's, you know, let's go ahead and eat that cake you know, as you say in the book, you know, that, that, that satisfaction is temporary. It, it's short lived. And so, you know, how important of a role does that play in realizing that, uh, you know, for our long-term habits, or I guess you can call it that. Yeah. So I talk about hedonic adaptation as, uh, this well-known phenomenon that, uh, the brain doesn't keep us satisfied for very long, right. <laughs> uh, that it's one of these, these aspects of our psyche that keeps us perpetually dissatisfied. And I try and make the case that this obsession with happiness is misplaced. <laughs> and I know this is kind of going to be a bummer for people, but I argue that our species has not evolved uh, to be happy, at least not all the time. That happiness and contentment is is evolved to be a very fleeting sensation. Yeah. And if you think about it, you know, for all the books that propose to teach us how to be happy and satisfied with our life and all that, it doesn't make sense from an evolutionary basis. You know, if you had a species of Homo sapiens, if our ancestors, if there was ever a tribe of people who were happy and satisfied and contented with life all the time, our ancestors probably killed and ate them. Right. Because right. that would not be a good evolutionary trait. You would want a species to always want more, to strive, to invent, to create. That spark to always want more is what makes us such an amazing species because we are never satisfied. Right. Now, the question is, what do we do with that discomfort? What do we do with that constant angst? Do we escape it? Right? Do we try and get out of our heads so we don't have to feel that discomfort, that wanting, that craving? Or can we use it as rocket fuel to lead us towards traction rather than distraction? So, so that's I think it's a very powerful thing. If you can harness that discomfort, it can really serve you in a way uh, as opposed to if you don't know how to deal with that discomfort, then of course it'll lead you away from what you really want. But I think the lesson here is to realize 
that feeling bad is not bad. Right. That we you know so many of us are so averse to feeling bad uh, that we'll run away from it uh, at, at our earliest uh, at every opportunity. Uh, particularly boredom. You know, boredom's a big one. There was a, I, I cite this study that Timothy Wilson did at Harvard, where he took participants in the study and he put them in a room with nothing but uh, a, a, an electrical current wrapped around their arm yeah. and a button in their hand that they could press that they were told would deliver a painful electrical shock. And all they had to do was to sit in this room and wait until the researcher came back. Yeah. I think it was something like 60% of men and like 20% of women shocked themselves. That's crazy. Yes, yes. <laughs> they couldn't stand being alone. <laughs> With themselves, without some kind of stimulus to take their mind off of the discomfort of boredom. Yeah, and so that's just a display of how I think our we we have evolved. This is this is something that is is hardwired into us. This desire to escape these uncomfortable sensations. You know, we're curious. We want to explore. We want to do something. Uh, and, and so you know, we we're constantly looking for that stimulus to take our mind off of these uh, these internal triggers, even if sometimes that stimulus hurts. Right. Right. And so I guess that kind of leads me naturally to, you know, kids and as, as they're growing up today, I, I, I kind of grew up in a mix between technology and, you know, playing outside. I, I was born in 85. Uh, we were outside building tree forts, you know, exploring the woods as often as we could. And we had that, that freedom that, uh, to, to get out there and satiate our boredom and just explore our creativity and have fun. I think I got my first cell phone when I was either 16 or 17. And so I wouldn't say I grew up with that technology, but nowadays kids are very much growing up with that. And so in order to satiate that boredom, you know, they're, they're getting that screen time and you, you have an entire section dedicated to your book about children and a very apt metaphor talking about you would not throw a child into a pool, into a six foot deep pool without teaching them to swim first. So why would you give them a cell phone without, without teaching them how to, responsibly use it. And so how important is that nowadays as, you know, these children are being born with these devices basically in their hands? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's a, it, this is what I call the skill of the century that I think if you, you know, if you think the world is distracting now, just wait a few years, yeah. it's only going to become more distracting, right? As we have more technological innovation and frankly, as the world gets better, right? As we have more potential options uh, for how we can spend our time, that means that there will be, if you're looking for distraction, you will find it. It will become more accessible. And so if we don't teach our kids how to become indistractable, I think they are going to bifurcate potentially into uh, either two kinds of people, right? The people who allow their lives and their time to be controlled by others yeah. and people who say, no, I am indistractable. I decide how I spend my time. I decide how I spend my attention. I decide how I spend my life because I am indistractable. And so that's why I think it's it's so critical that we teach this skill without vilifying the technology. Because I think if you just vilify the technology, you know, you, you go onto YouTube and you can find thousands of videos of parents uh, taking their kids' devices <laughs> yeah. and throwing them on the floor and bashing them with hammers. And it's, it's ridiculous because, yeah. you know, parents are blaming the technology when the overuse of technology is the symptom, not the sickness. Yeah. And I think by being so, so short-sighted, it's so predictable, right? It's just so, it's so obviously not the answer, right? That every generation of parents 
thinks, oh, this is why my kid acts crazy, right? When I was a kid, it was rap music. Oh, that's <laughs> turning these kids into violent, yeah. you know, violent super predators. And before that, it was, uh, what was it before that? Oh, it was, it was heavy metal. Yeah. Heavy metal was making kids into Satanists. And before that, it was the television set was melting your brain. And before that, it was comic books. I mean, every successive generation has this freak out moral panic. And it's never the cause. Right. Uh, the real cause is always something deeper. And I think particularly with this generation, they are highly deficient on what I call psychological nutrients that, uh, you know, there's a, a, a over 40 year old theory of human flourishing and well-being, which is called self-determination theory and self-determination theory. Every psychologist on the face of earth knows self-determination theory. It's a well-established, well-studied uh, branch of psychology, which says that every human being on the face of the earth needs three psychological nutrients that just as we have physiological nutrients, right? We have the macro macronutrients of protein, carbohydrates, and fat. We have the psychological nutrients of uh, competency, autonomy, and relatedness. And when we don't get enough of those things in the real world, we go looking for them in the virtual world. Right. So when you don't have a feeling of competency on, offline, you get it online, right? If you don't have a feeling of autonomy, if your life is is crazy scheduled. And we know that this is the most scheduled and regulated generation in history. Uh, there was a study done by Peter Gray a few years ago that found that the average American child has 10 times as many restrictions placed on them as an adult, yeah. twice as many restrictions as an incarcerated felon, right? There's only two places in society where you can tell people where to go, what to think, what to wear, who to be friends with, what to eat, <laughs> and that's school and prison. Yeah. And so it's no surprise that our kids are looking for autonomy. They're looking for some kind of way to assert themselves. And so if they can't do it offline, they do it online. And then finally, relatedness, that we know that the number of hours that kids spend in free play uh, has experienced a de precipitous decline, that since the 1950s, kids spend less time today playing than ever before. And I think that's a huge mistake that parents are making. They're 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 stuffing their kids into you know uh, Mandarin lessons and swimming practice and baseball league and right. all these activities, and they don't realize that the best thing you can do psychologically for your kid is to let them play with other kids, <laughs> right? That kids need time for free play without constantly being told what to do by adults and coaches. Let them play yeah. with real kids in the real world. But of course, they don't do that because parents are either so scared of stranger danger or you know kidnapping that they don't let their kids outside. Now, unfortunately, we have the Corona uh, problem, so that that's a big deal. So I would say, you know, even uh, letting your kid interact with their friends on on their devices is great, yeah. right? I mean, I would much rather have a kid uh, have a Zoom call with a buddy than you know alone by themselves staring at the television or playing a video game that not all screen time is the same. There are some forms of screen time which are great, right? Like interacting with their grandparents or right. with a friend, uh, even playing some video games. You know, there are many video games that parents just don't understand what they are, right? Like Fortnite, I think yes. it's a, a yeah. bad rap. Parents think uh, that Fortnite is a video game. It's not, it's a social network. It's yeah. a way to interact with your buddies, right? Yeah. It's not that much fun to play by yourself, but it's a lot of fun to play with your friends. And so that's how kids are hanging out. So I'd much rather have kids doing that than being alone all day. And so um, we, we need to find ways to get kids, you know, even especially after this corona epidemic is over, we need to make sure that kids have time in their day for that free play that's so important for their mental health.
Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned your book, the way you set up screen time with your daughter. It was I'd I'd like for you to tell that because it's you give her the autonomy to to, to make that choice. I think that's powerful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, a few years ago when she was just five or six years old, we sat down with her and we asked her, you know, how much time would you like to spend on your devices? And we we explained to her that, you know, it's not melting your brain. It's not, you know, we don't want to scare her because we know she, you know, the jobs of the future are going to require her to be comfortable and conversant with technology. So we don't want to scare her about that technology is addictive and evil and melting your brain. We wanted her to be comfortable with it. But we told her, look, the cost of using too much time of too much time spent on uh, on a screen is an opportunity cost. It's the cost of what else you could be doing with your time. Time spent with your friends, time spent with mommy and daddy, time spent reading a book, time spent doing your homework, whatever the case might be, that's the cost of too much screen time. So how much time would you like to spend uh, you know with with your with your iPad in this case? And she said two episodes. Now yeah. two episodes she was talking about Netflix episodes. And uh, for some cartoon that she used to love. And I said, okay, fine, that's fine. That's about 45 minutes. But how will we make sure that you will abide by your own rule? Yeah. And so she thought about it for a little bit and she came up with this great solution. She said, look, we, you know, we used to have this microwave below the countertop that she could walk up to. And she said, look, I'll use this timer to time myself. And when the microwave beeps, I'll know time's up. Well, today we live in a different place, and now she actually uses the Amazon Alexa. She'll say, Alexa, set the timer for 45 minutes. And now this is great because it's the technology yeah. telling her it's time to get off the device, not me. It's not yeah. mean old daddy. Right. It's the device telling her time is up. And more importantly, now she has learned to self-regulate, yeah. right? I'm yeah. not the one that constantly needs to berate her and tell her what to do. She has learned this essential skill of knowing how to make time for the certain things in her life that she wants. It's fine. There's no problem with 45 minutes of screen time as long as it's age appropriate. Absolutely. But she's regulating herself. Yeah, that's fantastic. I I, I love hearing that. And I love the technology piece, uh, how it's it's come full circle. Um, That's it's really great to hear that you are instilling a very a certain respect for technology and not not vilifying it, but showing her that it's powerful, it can be very useful as long as it's done correctly. And I, I really love that. Um, so yeah, you're, yeah. You're, and I think, by the way, I, I do want to interject just a couple of things. There are some ground rules, right? So for example, uh, if you're a parent of a child who is less than 13 years old, please don't let your kid go on social media, yeah, okay? Yes. It, the social media companies tell you the age limit is 13. You cannot be uh, under 13 years old and use social media. Why the heck are parents giving their kids a product that the manufacturer says, don't let your kid use? Right. Right. (laughs) The manufacturer says, don't do it. Listen to them. Uh, And he's, oh, but all their friends are doing it. I don't care. Right. That's a parent's responsibility is to is to make sure that they care for their children's well-being. So please don't let your kid on social media before age 13. I don't think kids should have social media accounts well into high school, frankly, but at least not before 13. I think middle school, high school is is hard enough without it. Uh, And then make sure that you remove those external triggers from their bedrooms, that what we're seeing is that the, 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 the real problems that come from overuse of technology it's not the technology itself. It's what the technology comes at the cost of, principally sleep. Yeah. 
that there is no reason that a child needs to sleep with their cell phone. Right. Big mistake. It needs to be charged outside. I don't think kids need television. I mean, tell me one good reason why a child needs a television in their room. I can't think of one good no, reason. None. Anything that potentially interrupts sleep should not be in their room. But frankly, I think that's the rule that adults should follow as well. But, you know, uh, that might be a, a tall order, but absolutely <laughs> not. Anything that interrupts sleep in the kid's room is a bad idea. Yeah, and I, I would recommend, if you have not read it, Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, that will scare you straight into making sure that you don't have devices in your room and, you know, the damage that you do to yourself by not getting enough sleep or by having that blue light just before you go to sleep. Yes, you know, that's right. I think what uh, didn't Steve wasn't Steve Jobs infamous for or I don't know if infamous is the right word but he would not let his own kids have devices even though he was manufacturing the the most popular cell phone the most popular devices in the entire world he knew you know how detrimental they could be if used incorrectly well, you know, that's interesting that you should say that. So that that quote has been uh, misconstrued, that okay. if you actually look back on what he said when he said he doesn't give his kids the iPad, uh, few people have gone into like when I when he said that. Yeah, he said it when the iPad was an Internet browser. OK, okay? this was this was before. Or when, when he said he didn't let his kids on the internet, he meant the open internet. He didn't mean that he didn't give his kids any screens. He meant the gotcha. open internet because this was before the Apple App Store. Yeah. And so he wasn't talking about he doesn't let his kids use any technology. He was saying he wouldn't let his kids go on the open web. And I don't know what sane parent would let their kid go on the right. open web. Right. I mean, that's that's crazy. I wouldn't let my kid into a library without knowing what she's reading yeah. because there's a lot of books that a 12-year-old little girl should not be reading. Yeah, right. Agreed. Any media needs to be moderated by the parent, especially the Internet. Right. You can't just let a kid on an Internet browser. They're going to find some stuff that they should not see. And I, that's what he was actually talking about. But of course, um, that story has been, you know, makes for a really good. Oh, for sure. A, a really good story. So get repeated a lot. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Nir, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Um, before we wrap up, I, I want to ask you a couple of final questions. What are you What are you currently working on? You know, obviously, we talked a little bit about you know as you were writing this book and you know as it became published, you never expected twenty twenty to happen. So I'm just curious, you know, what your life looks like now. Are you Are you Are you writing your your follow up book to that and how to deal with technology in a pandemic or what, What's currently on your plate? Yeah, you know, right now I'm just trying to stay focused on uh, staying focused. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. trying to stay focused on on uh, getting the message out there that I really feel uh, a personal mission here yeah. to help people deal with this uh, in in a tech positive way. I think there's a real risk right now that um, people are going to get into their head that they're powerless. And that that really scares me because, you know, there's this movie called The Social Dilemma that yes, just came out on yeah. Netflix, which is good in that it 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 brings more attention to the the the, the problem and I think makes people aware yeah. uh, of how they spend their time with technology. But I think people are going to glob on to these easy answers yeah. that we have to wait for someone to fix the problem for us. And then we have lost the war because yeah. they're not going to do anything about it. So I want people to know that they can be empowered by adopting these techniques that we can do something for ourselves, for our kids, for our workplace by becoming indistractable and showing others how to be indistractable as well. Yeah. You know, so that's in, what I'm doing in regard to that particular documentary. I, I, it's with, it's certainly with a bit of irony that I see so many people posting about how important this documentary is on social media. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if the irony's lost on them or not, but uh, you know, it's, it's yeah. been interesting to see. 
It's true. I see that a lot as well. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah, I, I kind of have mixed emotions about it, obviously. Yeah. Like I, I do think it's good that it's part of the conversation, but it kind of drives me nuts that, uh, that, that people are content with not doing anything about it yeah. <laughs> other than waiting for someone to fix the problem for them. Absolutely. Well, um, in regard to, you know, getting this message out in, in regard to making sure that people understand that they're capable of becoming indistractable, you know, what, what resources are you looking for? You know, whether it's, or not it's, it's buying the book, you know, or preaching the good word, what's, what resources do you need to continue help growing and, you know, uh, getting this message out into the public? Oh, thanks. So yeah, so if anybody's interested to learn more, then you can certainly go to my blog, nearandfar.com. Uh, there's actually an 80-page workbook there that you can download, whether you buy the book or not. Uh, you know, Irregardless, you can get that 80-page workbook. We actually cut it from the book because the book got too long. So now it's available for you for free at nearandfar.com. And uh, yeah, the book is called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And it's available wherever books are sold. And other than that, if, you, if anybody wants to reach out or if you have any questions, if you read the book, I make uh, time for readers for uh, I do these office hours every week. So if I can be helpful, you can sign up right on my blog to ask me any questions. Uh, and uh, yeah, any, any, anything else, feel free to, to find me on social media. <laughs> as long as you use it on your schedule, right. uh, feel free to reach out. Um, I, I love that domain name, by the way. Hopefully you get compliments about it all the time. It's, it's fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, so one last question before we wrap up. Something I, I love asking all my guests because it really it makes it feel like I'm, I'm getting secret insider advice to you know how they live, these high performers, how how they have gotten to where they are. It's you know if you had to pick one life changing book that you you read and you knew sure. that this was going to have an astronomical effect on your life, what would that book be? And I, I'm curious, you know, why that that book did change your life. That's a good question. So I often get, get times get asked what what were my favorite books, um, but you're asking for what's a, a life changing book. Um, that's a that's a that's a good question. I mean, I can tell you some books that have really influenced me. Uh, one of the books that really inspired me to start writing uh, was a book called Hackers and Painters by Paul Graham, and it's just a compilation of essays. But I think uh, you know mind-blowing ideas per page it, 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 there's a great ratio that he puts in the book that you know you read the book and then afterwards you just see things differently and i always yeah. wanted to do that for other people so i think if you if you want to read a great essayist i think that'd be a book i'd recommend hackers and painters that's fantastic um and there's so many other there's so many great ones out there um uh when i was a kid i read this book uh surely you're joking mr Feynman. Uh, if you know the work of Richard Feynman, I think his, I think he is probably uh, responsible for me being a contrarian in many ways. Yeah. Uh, you know, if 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 everybody believes one thing, then that's a pretty good indication that you should look into it and make sure that it's not wrong because many times it will be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you know, Richard Feynman, I very much was about um, you know calling BS on things, and so I think that I remember I, I read that in like middle school, and it really had an impact on me. That's fantastic. Yeah, I will. I will link both those books to the show notes. Um, I, I never heard of Hackers and Painters before, but I, I did look into it a little bit prior to us hopping on here, and it's it looks fascinating. So I, I will be picking that up. But seriously, near. Oh, thing. another good one. Yeah, that will blow your mind. Actually, that I think I think everyone should read. This is this is a good one, and it's a, it's a very a fairly recent book called Factfulness. Okay. 
uh, by Hans Ronsling. I think everybody should read that because I think it's another one of those books that um, you, you just won't realize how skewed your perception of the world is. You, you probably, many people, he actually, he just passed away, but he gave these incredible Ted talks uh, that, that uh, uh, you know, always would, would blow people's minds. And then he, this book was, was no less wonderful. Awesome. Well, Nir, again, thank you truly for taking the time to chat with me and for, for writing this book. I mean, it's extremely important. I, I, I highly recommend it to anybody who feels like they're constantly being pulled away from the task at hand uh, to check in with their, their social media, with their email. Email is a huge problem for me, and it's something that I've tried to remedy through taking notifications off my watch, through taking vibrating notifications off my phone. So this book solidified that, uh, that those decisions. So thank you for doing that. Oh, my pleasure. I'm so glad you got so much out of it. And uh, yeah, I, re I really appreciate that. That makes it, uh, that really makes my day. Thank you for saying that. Good. Well, again, thank you for doing this. And uh, I, I look forward to hopefully talking again soon. Sounds great. All right. Take care. One more time, I would like to extend a huge thank you to Nir for joining me on the podcast today. It was a fantastic conversation and it was so enlightening being able to speak with the author of a book that's had such great influence on my life. So again, thank you, Nir. And to all of you who have taken time out of your day to listen, thank you. I truly appreciate you and I highly recommend you check out the show notes. Nir has provided a bunch of resources that we discussed throughout the episode. All of those are linked in the notes, both on your podcast player as well as at the mosaic life podcast.com. If you check nothing else out, be sure to check out Nir's website, near NIR and far.com, where you can find additional resources on his books and his writing. Last but not least, if the Mosaic Life Podcast brings value to your life, I would be forever grateful to you if you would leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I also invite you to follow the journey on Instagram at One Mosaic Life. And of course, just search for The Mosaic Life Podcast on Facebook, but only if you use those resources responsibly. Thank you all again so incredibly much. And until next time, take care, do better and be well. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.